hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. When should I start taking social security payments? My partner and I have a big age disparity. When should we start taking social security? What if we have a big income disparity? These are all common questions that we get from our listeners and viewers when we talk about social security. So today you're listening to Queer Money episode number 416, and we're talking with Mike Piper, CPA and author of Social Security Made Simple, about these questions and more. We think you'll love how Mike has made Social Security so simple that we're giving away a free copy of his book. So hang on until the end of the show to find out how you might win that copy. Now on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome, Mike Piper, to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited for a meaty and sexy discussion on Social Security. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. So you're a bit of a contrarian. So let's start off with why should we care about Social Security? And is it even going to be here by the time I'm old enough to need it, let alone a millennial or a Gen Zer? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding. They've heard that Social Security is running out of money. And so they think that that means that it's going to completely disappear. Yeah. The reality of the situation is that there is a, a trust fund, which is basically a, a pool of money that's been built up over the years, because while the baby boomers were working, there was a lot more money coming into the Social Security than going out. So there was accumulating a pool of money. And then as the baby boomers have retired, now the program is paying out more than it's taking in. So that pool of money is being depleted. And so when people talk about it running out, the current projection is that the trust fund will be depleted somewhere around 2033. So we've got about 10 years left. Right. But what happens after that is that the incoming tax revenue every year, the social security tax that you pay on wages or self-employment income, it's projected to cover about 77% of the promised benefits. So even if Congress never does anything at all, it would be a roughly one quarter cut. So a significant cut, oh. but it's a very big difference between that and, oh my goodness, social security is going to completely disappear. There's no reason to think that it would completely disappear. Sure. So do you mind if I ask, we talk about generations oftentimes when we get into this discussion about social security disappearing, but aren't millennials the largest generation and Gen Z larger than Gen X. So the generations that we see potentially moving into their higher earning years in the next 10, 20, 30 years are actually really large generations. Is it possible that we could see the pendulum swing the other direction? Because we do have a lot similar to boomers. We have a lot more people contributing than maybe taking out. Yeah, we do have. That's exactly right. As millennials and Gen Z is moving into their earnings years, that, that's a good thing for the program. I will note that that's already included in the actuarial analysis. One thing that's fortunate, I guess I'll say, about this whole situation is that we have really good data on how long people live on average. We don't know how long one particular person will live, of course, but a pool of many millions of people, we know about how long they'll live. So we know we have a very good idea of 
the expenditures for the program. We also have a pretty good ballpark for the income coming in every year. And so the trustees, they put out this estimate every year and they've been putting it out. I mean, the whole time I've been working in the social security field, so 15 years, it doesn't really change. I mean, every once in a while, it'll move by, you know, it'll be 75% instead of 77, 76, but it's a really pretty solid estimate. We have a very good understanding of the scope of the situation. So is it safe to say then that Gen Xers are saving social security for the country? <laughs> that, we're small, small is, that what, is that what we're doing? <laughs> oh my God. That's I how I, ever, somebody wants a cape. That's how I'm interpreting <laughs> what he just said. Sure. <laughs> Let's go with that, he says. <laughs> so I read your book, Social Security Made Simple, and we're going to let our audience know how they might be able to get a free copy of your book at the end of this episode. And I think it's great because it actually is very simple. Sometimes you can read even some social security blog posts are like so, you know, information dense and convoluted. Like it's just kind of over over my head. And I think I'm somewhat smart, not terribly smart, but somewhat smart. So I think I should be able to get most of it. But in your book, Social Security Made Simple, you say even if you are married, the place to start when trying to determine when you should start taking Social Security is with an understanding of the less complicated unmarried retiree. So why is this? Yeah, it's the same reason why in high school physics class, we ignore air resistance and we ignore friction and we ignore all of the complicating factors, right? We start with just the very basics and we're doing the same thing here. So with a married couple, there's spousal benefits and survivor benefits, and that really complicates the math. We also have to be thinking about joint life expectancies instead of individual life expectancies. So there's just a lot more going on. So even for a married couple, it makes sense to say, you know what, I'm going to look at the analysis for a single person. So we're just concerned with one person's retirement benefit, one person's life expectancy, and make sure that you understand all the pros and cons of each decision and have a firm grasp on that and then move on and say, okay, now let's go ahead and incorporate the more real life situation for our particular household. Gotcha. I like how you assume that I paid attention in school. <laughs> <laughs> or even went to a physics class. <laughs> or even... Shut up, David. But that does make a lot of sense, right? Understand the basics first. I mean, it's kind of why you learn adding and subtracting before mm -hmm. you start learning multiplication, right? Is to learn the basics first. So I guess the the ultimate trade-off that we're all trying to figure out is the optimal time, right? Of, of when I'm going to get the most money for the most benefit, right? So the trade-off is either getting more payments throughout your lifetime or getting bigger payments throughout your lifetime. What is in your opinion, and I like the way you break it down, which is why we're going to ask the question, what in your opinion is, is the best way to, to calculate that for individual cases? Yeah, there's a, a few ways to go about doing that. And just like you said, the trade-off, you can start your benefit as early as age 62, or you can wait as late as age 70. And for every month that you wait, the monthly benefit, if you filed, would be slightly larger than if you had filed in the previous month. Right. And so it's exactly that. It's a trade-off between an earlier benefit that's somewhat smaller or a later benefit that's somewhat larger. And I think for an individual, if you want to do just a DIY spreadsheet-based analysis, you can do what we call a break-even analysis. There's also other ways that you can do it. There's online calculators. There's a net present value calculation for the, the finance buffs. That's probably the best way to do it. But there's, there's a few different options, basically. You know, we, do, we, did a, we did a podcast episode last year about the kind of the, the... We didn't necessarily go down the path of a break-even, but John and I used my SSA.gov accounts and actual R amounts to show the difference between what would happen if we took at 62 full retirement age and 70 
72, right? Yeah, 72. And so we kind of did that kind of analysis, at least a brief one for folks out there to show the difference. But I think, you know, it is, it's very personal, right? Because each of us have our own calculation based on what we put in and how much work, how many, may, how many credits we have, what our earnings were towards the end of our of our working career. So it's very personal. And that's why it's important each person do their own and don't make an assumption based on an example that we've used. Yeah, that's exactly right. Especially for for married couples, because the analysis is very specific, just like you said, because it depends on the difference in the earnings history between the two people. It also depends on the difference in age. So there's there's a lot going on. Also things like health, what kind of health you know condition you're each in, that's very important. So it is important to to do your own analysis, in my opinion. I think that makes it a great time to ask this question. We do have a lot of our listeners who are same-sex couples, and they they very often have one partner is considerably older than the other partner. What's your suggestion on, on figuring out when's the optimal time to take Social Security, considering I might have a much older partner? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the calculation really is impacted when you're more than 10 years old, right? 10 years older? Well, it's basically with... So we haven't really dug into the complicating stuff here, but with a married couple, when the spouse with a higher earnings record waits to file for their benefit, it increases the couple's benefit for as long as either person is still living. And so that's an important point because it means that what you are concerned with is the couple's joint second to die life expectancy. So how long will it be that at least one person is still alive? And by definition, that's longer than any individual person's life expectancy. And the way that age factors into this is that the younger your spouse is relative to you, the longer that joint life expectancy is, right? If we imagine an extreme case, somebody who's 62 and they're trying to decide about social security, and let's say their spouse is 32. Well, the question of how long will at least one person still be alive? It's a pretty darn long time, right? Because right. one of the two people is is in their 30s. And so the younger your spouse is relative to you, the more sense it makes to wait to file for your own retirement benefit. Yeah. So two and a half to three years isn't a big deal, John. <laughs> That's our age difference. <laughs> yeah. For couples like that, it's, I mean, does it factor into the math? Yes, yeah. a little bit, but it's not a dramatic factor. No. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Okay, so you continue in the book that another way to analyze the decision is to compare the payout you get from delaying Social Security to your level of income that you can safely get from other resources. It sounds like it's easier said than done. Do you have any suggestions and can you elaborate on that strategy? Sure. So when you delay taking your benefit, you can think of it as if you're 62 right now, so you're first in that situation of needing to make this decision. Mm -hmm. And let's say you decide to wait until 63. So that's 12 months of benefits that you've given up. So you can think of it as you use that amount of income, 12 times your monthly benefit, and you use that to buy and increase 
in your later income. So effectively, what you're doing here is you're buying an annuity is what we call it. Or you could think of it as buying a pension, right? Because you're buying a stream of income that's going to last through your life. And it varies from one year to the next in terms of what that payout is. But it's somewhere in the ballpark of 7%, basically. Each year that you delay is somewhere in the ballpark of a 7% increase. So you could think of it as if you gave up $10,000 of income, you know, times 7% or that would be the, the payout that you're getting. It'd be the equivalent of buying an annuity that's paying a 7% payout for your life. And it's an inflation adjusted one. And the reality is that if you were to go look online at websites, one of them is immediateannuities.com that will tell you what payout you could get on an annuity. They are lower yields than that. They're not backed by the federal government. And they don't have an inflation adjustment. So right, basically, right. The, the the deal you're getting when you delay Social Security is a, a very good deal. And the other comparison that you can make, if you've been doing any research on retirement spending, you've probably run into what we call the 4% rule, right, which yeah. is this idea that you can spend somewhere in the ballpark of 4% from your portfolio per year if you want it to last for 30 years. And if you want it to last for longer than 30 years, scaling it a little bit below 4% might be a good idea. Right. So compare that 4% to roughly 7%. And again, we see this case where delaying social security, basically the level of income that you're buying relative to what you're giving up tends to be a very good deal. Do you so, think any of that is changing with the skyrocketing inflation that we're dealing with right now? Because we know a lot of people who are in the FIRE movement who are now mm -hmm. going back to work because that 4% distribution is no longer working for them. So do you think that, I mean, this may, hopefully this is a temporary situation, but do you think that's affecting the calculation for people as well? Inflation itself shouldn't necessarily affect the calculation because the benefits that you receive are inflation adjusted. So in effect, it, it's a wash with regard to social security. What does affect the calculation though is real yields. So inflation adjusted interest rates. So that's basically the the interest rate that you would get on TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Mm -hmm. And the higher that those are, the more advantageous it is to file for social security early. Basically, the idea that take the money and invest it, that's a more attractive option when inflation-adjusted interest rates are high. Now, if interest rates are high, but inflation-adjusted interest rates are low, meaning that interest rates are high, but it's only because inflation is really high, then that does not point in favor of filing earlier. We are only concerned with inflation-adjusted interest rates, real interest rates, as we would call them. Gotcha. We're not having that happen right now, but inflation right now, the interest rates are up because of inflation. The 2023 Social Security benefit was increased by 9.4, was it 9.4% and 9.2%? I can't remember. Yeah. I think it was above 9%. And I think a lot of retirees were very thankful for that because of the fact that prices have gone up so much. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that Social Security is inflation adjusted for your whole life is a critical component of the situation. And right. frankly, that's not something that you can get from you know just about anything else these days. Right. right. And that's, a, that's a, a really good point to make for folks who have a portfolio, retirement portfolio of investments. There isn't an, unless you are invested in I-bonds or treasury and the tips, then you don't have that kind of automatic increase with your portfolio. You, you may have a year where there is no inflation and your portfolio is up 20%, right? 
as we've seen recently, you may have a year where inflation is up 10% and your portfolio is down 25%. Yeah, exactly. And then the other, I mean, now we're just getting into broader retirement planning topics, but the other thing that comes up that happens in real life is, you know, your spending strategy calls for spending, let's say 4% or three and a half percent this year, but you need a new roof on your house, or you just got a particular diagnosis, which means you're going to need a really expensive surgery, right? Nobody's going to say, oh, I'm not going to get this tumor removed because that would mean spending six and a half percent this year. And my spending strategy calls for spending three and a half. No one's going to do that. Everyone just, let's hope, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So you spend whatever you need to spend in some cases. And so that's another reason why in general planning for a low initial spending rate makes a lot of sense. So that you've got wiggle room for things like that happening. Gotcha. You say, broadly speaking, though, considering the life expectancy of women and men, 85 and 82 respectively, that in general, it's typically best to delay taking Social Security payments to reach full retirement age. Would you say that's still accurate? Yeah, that's. I would say that's still accurate. So firstly, with regard to that statement, that's talking about the individual unmarried person, right? Because that's the simpler situation. So right, okay. for an unmarried person, it generally makes sense to wait actually all the way until age 70. So full retirement age for most people is age 67 at this point, or for some people, it's a little bit before 67. It could be 66 and eight months or 10 months. But most of the time, it makes sense to wait until age 70. And the reason for that, in addition to these facts, we've been talking about the fact that it gives an inflation-adjusted income for the rest of your life. So it's a very safe thing that you can't get access to in most other ways. The primary reason for that is that since this current set of rules was created, life expectancies have gone up. And so that just basically pushes the math in favor of waiting. It makes waiting more mm -hmm. advantageous because the longer you live, the more advantageous it will turn out to have been to have this larger benefit that lasts your whole life. Right. And right. I think it's it's important to note here, folks, that that the government calculation for life expectancy is very different than what we're seeing being reported in the news right now. The average life of individuals living in the US. We've seen in the last two years that that has dropped, right? I think what now we're at, is it in the 75 and 74 or something to that? I can't remember the exact numbers. Really, the kind of the idea here is that you want to use these numbers, these life expectancy numbers for your planning and thinking about social security rather than what is really happening because that's is. just an average, right? It is highly likely that you may be one of these individuals who's going to push that higher because what we're seeing happen, especially right now, we're seeing a lot of deaths that are related to things that are killing individuals at really young ages. Exactly. People in their 20s and 30s, the number of individuals in their 20s and 30s dying because of suicide or drug or alcohol related. I know there's a term for COVID. this. But that has really kind of brought the average life. I don't want to say I, can't, I want to say expectancy, but it's not actually average life expectancy. But it has brought that down. The number yeah, it, of it average, is, yeah, it, it is the average life expectancy has come down. But just like you're saying, the the key point here, at least to the extent we're talking about social security planning, is that what we're concerned with for social security decisions is somebody who has already made it to age sixty two. Right? Because if you haven't made it to that point, you're not making this decision anyway. Yeah. So somebody who's already made it to that age, from that point forward, what's their life expectancy? Which can be a very, very different number than what you're seeing in the news, which is for somebody who's born today, what is their life expectancy? Those are not the same number. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So this leads me to a question that we've had for a while, and I'm excited to ask you. What are your thoughts on taking Social Security payments starting at 62, even if you are still working, and then investing that money and not taking up until, I guess, up until you either retire or reach the age of 70? Do you have any thoughts or concerns about that? Sure. Two things come to mind. Point number one is then we have to be thinking about the Social Security earnings test, which is basically a rule that says that if you're younger than full retirement age and you're still working, if you earn more than a certain amount and that threshold changes every year, but if you earn more than a certain amount, they're going to start withholding your benefit, basically. So there's a good chance that if we're talking about people who are working full time, that even if they filed for their benefit, they wouldn't actually be collecting their benefit because it would just be withheld due to this earnings test anyway. So that's kind of issue number one there. But even if we kind of set that aside, so let's say somebody with earnings below that threshold, or if we're talking about somebody who's already reached full retirement age, so they're 67 and they're still working. And the question is, what about, you know, I'm 67, I'm still working. Should I file now and invest the money in stocks rather than waiting until 70? Right. So then the other thing to be thinking about is that when, so social security is a a low risk thing. It's a fixed income part of your household balance sheet, whereas stocks are obviously not a fixed income part of your balance sheet. They're the, the risky side of your balance sheet. And what it usually makes sense to do, and this is getting a little bit more complicated without, you know, a flow chart or a spreadsheet to show it. But in that situation, what probably makes more sense is actually continue to delay social security and shift some money from your bond portfolio, assuming that you have a chunk of your money in bonds, shift it from bonds into stocks. And essentially what you're doing there is you're adding some stocks, which is what you're trying to do with the file early and invest in stocks. So you're still achieving that goal. But what you're doing is you're scaling back your actual bond holdings and increasing your social security. And usually that's a good trade-off. Social security is, again, it's fixed income, you know, part of the household balance sheet, but it is frankly a better deal than the bonds that you can buy in the market because it's a payout that's set legislatively rather than set by the market. And so it's it's just a better deal in most cases. And so most of the time, it makes sense to be, if you can, in some way or another, exchange some of your bond holdings for more social security. You can think of it as selling bonds to buy more social security. Generally, if you can do that in one way or another, it usually makes sense to do that. Got you. So we, the reason we ask that question is we have people in our mm-hmm. life who are actually executing that strategy. But I like what I've never really thought of it the way that you just described it. Yeah. I, and maybe I should have, having been in finance all my years. But considering that the the Social Security portion that I'm going to get is the conservative portion of my portfolio, which allows mm-hmm. me, even if I'm trying to you know, be well diversified and factoring in my age and all that, mm-hmm. allows me to be a little bit more aggressive in the money that I can actually touch my hands on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Especially with what we saw happen in the bond market over the last couple of years, right? We traditionally we think that when stocks are down, bonds are up. But this, the last couple of years, has been just completely the opposite, where we've had both of them down. And if you had moved money out of Social Security and into a portfolio, you would have lost a significant amount of value during that time period. Whereas yours basically saying, take just keep take the cash and keep it kind of keep it in cash. 
use it as your as your living expenses rather than investing it. Yeah, I think exactly. So the way that you phrased the question initially was take the money and invest it. Right. But for a lot of people who are already retired, it's a, a similar question, but it's you know the opposite side of the same coin. It's should I take social security now so that I don't have to spend down my portfolio? And so it's it's the same idea because instead of taking the money and invest it, you're taking the money so that you can allow your investments to remain invested. Right. So it's a, a similar concept. But again, what usually makes sense in that case is to start spending from the bond part of the portfolio, spend down the bonds to effectively buy more social security. You're sort of keeping your asset allocation the same. Not exactly because social security is not the same thing as a bond. They're different, right? But social security is still fixed income. It's a safe part of you know your household's overall financial picture. And it is generally a better deal than what you can get from bonds. Right. Right. Okay. It always seems like every time we have somebody on the show who understands social security, they're big fans of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's something that they know a lot more about than the general population. That's makes you think that maybe we should stop being so cynical about social security. (laughs) Well, it is, it's just this situation where it's created legislatively, right? So it was not only is it set by law, but it's set by law that was written quite a while ago at this point. And the law hasn't changed, but the world around it has changed. You know, life expectancies have gone up. Inflation adjusted interest rates are lower than those that were, you know, assumed when the the math was done, the writing the law. And so it that's just the way it works, is that delaying is usually going to be a good idea. There are exceptions. We can, you know, dig into those if you would like, but usually just because you know, the world has changed and the right. system hasn't changed. So it's kind of set up in this way that the default strategy of waiting is is a good idea. Right. Yeah. Especially, sense. I think, if you are a more healthy person, right, then your life expectancy, as you mentioned, and I remember looking at the tables when I would do calculations for required minimum distributions, the older you get, the more likely it is that you're going to continue living, which is an odd concept, right? You just, yeah. you don't expect that to be, you think the older you get, the more closer you are to getting to dying, but that actually is is a little different. They bump that number up even more and you take less of what you're, you're a year older, but you don't take one, exactly. one, uh, right. one year's worth of amount out of your calculation. I exactly. probably just butchered that, but. <laughs> That's so, a good explanation. So it, it, for every year older that you get, your life expectancy goes down, but not by one year. It might yeah. go down by nine tenths of a year. Right. Thank you. It That's doesn't a have, much better. It doesn't way have an it. inverse relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've kind of touched on this a, a little bit before, but there is a big difference between the calculation when you are an, a single individual and a married couple. Let's kind of cover the highlights of that. What is the difference? Yeah. What should we be thinking about? Because we have encouraged folks in the community who listen to the podcast that if you've been together for an extended period of time, you should get married because of the financial benefits. But then when we start talking about social security, we need to explain what those differences are because for some people, it may be significantly different enough that they don't want to get married. Yeah. Well, so actually there's, as far as social security is concerned, being married is strictly advantageous. There's no downside. There can be a downside as far as 
you know, taxes for being. He keeps looking for a downside to be married. He can't find one, so you're not getting out of this. Yeah, I'm not getting out of this. There's no way of getting out. Not alive anyway. (laughs) So with Social Security, there's your own retirement benefit, which is based on your own earnings record, and then we have spousal benefits, and that's for when you're married and both people are still alive. And the way that works, very roughly is that, you know, a spouse say their retirement benefit at their full retirement age would be, you know, X number of dollars. The other person's maximum spousal benefit would be half of that amount. And so generally that's relevant in cases where you've got a big discrepancy in the earnings history. So for instance, if one person was a full-time parent for, you know, many, many years, and so they have lots of years where their, their earnings history reflects just zeros or they did a lot of volunteer work was their primary, you know, career essentially. Um, well, you got a sugar daddy or a sugar mama. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this so, is this is always the fun part of the conversation because yeah. we do talk about this. Yeah, the like, sugar daddy yeah. analogy comes up a lot on this show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's when spousal benefits will be exactly relevant. And then the other thing that we want to be thinking about is survivor benefits, and this is why the math for a married couple is more complicated than for an individual. That's the primary reason, anyway. And the way that survivor benefits work, and again, this is kind of glossing over some of the details here, but the rough idea is that when either of the two spouses dies, that surviving spouse will keep receiving whichever of the two retirement benefits was higher, is roughly the way that it works. And so if you've got spouse A and spouse B and spouse A earned more, if spouse A dies first, spouse B can now get a survivor benefit that's equal to what spouse A was receiving. And so this has a whole ton of ramifications in terms of social security planning. One of them is what we talked about, where for the higher earning spouse, it's usually a super good deal to wait until age 70. Because what happens when they do that is they're increasing their own retirement benefit, but they're also increasing the survivor benefit that the other spouse could receive if that becomes applicable. How would John delaying increase my benefit? That's kind of a new twist for me. Yeah. So, so that's relevant if John's the higher earner. So if the higher earner delays, it increases their own retirement benefit, right? Right. And because the other person's benefit as a survivor would be based on your retirement benefit. Yeah. Well, so the longer the I delay, the more advantageous the survivor benefit would be for him should I die first. Exactly. Precisely. I'm living to 100, so it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, good. That's another reason to delay. <laughs> but but the opposite is true when we look at the decision for the lower earning spouse. Because when that person waits to file for their retirement benefit, it only increases the household income for as long as both people are still alive. Because as soon as either of the two people dies, then whoever is still alive will now be getting the larger of the two benefits and the smaller one will have gone away. So the fact that the person with the lower earnings record waited and increased that smaller benefit, well, now that smaller benefit's gone. So it doesn't it doesn't matter. So for the lower earning spouse, it's less advantageous to wait than it is for the higher earning spouse. And it's less advantageous to wait than it would be for an unmarried individual, frankly. Okay. So, so let's, okay. This is, I think this is huge. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you've got because we do get the question a, a lot, and maybe it's contingent on the age disparity that some of our audience has, but there's oftentimes a big disparity in, in income with our, mm-hmm. our listeners who are in relationships. So you're saying that based on income alone, 
it typically makes more sense for the higher income earner to delay taking social security until as long as possible, ideally full retirement age. Ideally 70, in fact. Ideally 70. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the lower earning individual in most cases would be more advantageous for them to take social security as soon as they reach 62. That is a great rough draft strategy, basically. And then from there, just like we talked about, the household circumstances matter. We'd want to be thinking about, well, what is the difference in age and what kind of health are both people in? And Mm -hmm. are there tax planning reasons to do something different? But that's a, a very good rough draft strategy. Higher earner waits as long as possible. Lower earner files early. Sure. And, and that's kind of going back to your old calculation of the generally about a 7% annual increase. Well, mm-hmm. that's compounding interest, right? So you compound on a larger amount, 7% in a larger amount means that that monthly benefit would just be larger and larger rather than going off of the smaller amount. So it does make sense for that, that one with the larger potential payout to delay because of how much that compounding interest would have an impact on that payout. Yeah, it's it's very impactful for most households, frankly, to have that that higher earner delay benefits. It makes a significant difference in terms of the expected amount that they'll get to spend over their collective lifetimes. Yeah. So and, you kind of look at at this as uh, the lower earners' social security benefit payout is kind of basically funding them while they wait for the higher earner to begin taking their their payout. That basically, it kind of does make sense that you would want to to maximize the amount of payout that you're going to get if you're still able to live within those means, right? Obviously, if the lower earner's payout is so small, you may need that higher earner's payout to be able to cover living expenses, but that's why it's also important to have other sources of income. Right. Yeah, the, the whole discussion here is is predicated on the idea that hopefully there are other assets to spend down, right? If if the if delaying social security means you know racking up credit card debt to to pay your monthly bills, that's that's not a good idea. That makes sense. That's great information, though. Yeah, I've never really thought about it that way, and we know so many couples in our life that could fall into that, totally. or have already started. You know, parents and and aunts and uncles who have started taking their payouts. And it would be interesting to talk to them to see if they went through that calculation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe another reason for our audience to buy this book. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Open social security. It's a calculator that I made. And I know this is might come across as promotional, but it is free and it's not free, but you have to put in your email address or anything like that. It's, it's completely free. You don't, it doesn't collect any of your information and it basically runs the actuarial math for you. So you put in your age, your spouse's age, information about your your retirement benefit, and it, it does the math for you and says that you know such and such filing age would be the filing age that would be expected to provide the greatest total amount of benefits. And then it lets you test other ages too. And it's gotcha. open source, so anyone it's not a black box. Anyone who wants to you know dig in and see how it's doing the math can look on GitHub, see how it right works. On. So what was the yeah. link again? It's opensocialsecurity.com. Okay. Well, because you, you, you stole my next question. I was going to say, you mentioned calculators a couple of times. Which, which calculator do you like? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll also note though, that it's not the only good one. I mean, the reason I made it is because frankly, the other free calculators at the time were really lacking. Let's just say, mm-hmm. for instance, a lot of them for married couples just completely ignored survivor benefits, which when you do that, you know, 
you're leaving out half of the analysis, right? So none, right. Well, none of the conclusions make any sense. But there are two really good paid ones that I don't have any association with. One of them is Maximize My Social Security, and the other one is Social Security Solutions. They're both great products. They're they're not free, but the cost is relatively modest, and they're both quite good. Nice. That's great. Okay. We'll link to all those in the show notes, folks. Absolutely. So then as I was reading your book, something that dawned on me was like, how would I even collect social security? Like, who does that? Does somebody come to you and say, hey, it's time for you to do this? And then I looked online and I was like, you can easily apply online. And I thought that seems too easy. So what's the easiest way or best way for people to start applying for social security and get this ball rolling when when it's optimal for them? Mm -hmm. I would say apply online. The, The big exception is that you can't apply for survivor benefits online. And I, I don't know why, honestly, they haven't set up a system to do that, but you have to do that in person or on the phone. But if you can apply online, apply online. And the reason for that is just the reason that you're taking humans out of the process as much as possible. Computers will process your application appropriately. And the whole time I've been working in this field, I've only ever heard of one case where an online application was processed incorrectly, but I hear almost almost every month from somebody who went to the office or had a phone call and was given incorrect information. And in part, that's just because the frontline job, the person answering the phone when you call, it's a job that it only requires a three-week training period. And it's also a call center job, right? So it has high turnover. So you're dealing with a person who you know, has probably been in this field in many cases for less than a year. And it's an extremely complicated set of rules Right. That it's their job to help you try to understand, and, and they're still, frankly, new. And so they're they're get, making a good a good faith effort to apply the rules appropriately and do everything that they're supposed to do and help you through the process. But mistakes happen, and so applying online it just eliminates all of that. Basically, we, we say it often on this podcast: trust the robots, friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just let the robots use them do to it. your advantage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. I think this has been a very meaty discussion. And as I said, we'll share at the end of the episode how our audience can get a free copy of Social Security Made Simple. Very well written and very simply written, which which is, I think, wonderful for a lot of people who Social Security goes over their heads, including myself. Where, How can our audience connect with you? Where are you on social? Do you have a website thingy? What, anything? How can our, they follow up if they want to learn more from you? Sure. So my blog is Oblivious Investor, uh, obliviousinvestor.com. Email Mike at obliviousinvestor.com. I am on Twitter, Michael R. Piper, although admittedly, I don't use it as often as a lot of people do, let's just say. And again, the open social security calculator, it's free. So that's a way you can find you know, a thing that I built, but it's not something that I'm you know, adding to regularly, but it's free and it's easy to use. Awesome. And I, we didn't preface this earlier, but you are a CPA, right? So the, you know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm a CPA. You went to school. Uh, yes, <laughs> right. And I've been working in the social security field for about 15 years. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think there are some great nuggets that came from this episode that I think our audience is going to love. So thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Mike, for a great interview. You really break down social security and social security payments into simple, understandable bites. To you, our listeners, viewers, thank you for joining us for another episode. Here's your criminal takeaway. 
Take Mike's advice and go to his free calculator at opensocialsecurity.com. Start playing with the numbers there and see what works best for you or you and your partner. We just did it and it's eye-opening. Yes. And then subscribe to the Career Money Podcast email list in your podcast player or in the description of this YouTube video so you could possibly win a copy of Mike's book. Social Security Made Simple. Finally, join us this Thursday when we talk about the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city to live in North Carolina. And next Tuesday, when we talk with our sponsors, Capital One, about financial well-being. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.